uh, and you'll see that book three, um, Psalm 73 through 89, are, comprise what is called book three. Um, I had a, one of my Hebrew professors brought out the fact that the Psalms were not arranged haphazardly or randomly, but there is, there is a real structure to them. And it, it's not a mistake that the, the Psalms are divided into five books. Does the word, the number five, mean anything to anyone in the Old Testament? Starts with P, rhymes with Pentateuch, the Pentateuch, the Torah. The, the first five books of the Bible: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Well, if you look at these five books of the Psalms, it's, it, it's, it's just fascinating to think that book one, which is Psalms 1 through 41, it suggests and it shadows Genesis in its content. If you read through these Psalms, you'll see that man is seen in a state of blessedness, then there's fall and there's recovery. These are primarily authored by David. Then we have book 2, which is Psalm 42 through 72, which suggests Exodus in its content, because in these Psalms, we see man is in ruin and in need of redemption. Again, mostly Davidic in its authorship. Book 3, which is where we will be today, we were actually last time as well, Psalm 73 to 89, suggests Leviticus in content. These Psalms emphasize the sanctuary and the tabernacle, the temple. They are largely liturgical. In other words, these were written, the Psalms in Book 3 were written largely to be used in their worship, in their liturgy in the temple. Book 4 would be Psalms 90 through 106, suggest numbers and content. In these Psalms, we see peril and, that peril and protection are prominent. Many are prophetic in looking to the time of, wand, of the wanderings for Israel that they will cease. Book 5, Psalm 107 to the conclusion to Psalm 150 suggests Deuteronomy in content. These psalms emphasize or, or uh, focus on the Word of God. Uh, that great Psalm 119, <laughs> talking about uh, the, the, the beauty of the Word of God. So it suggests Deuteronomy in content. The Word of God, perfection and praise are, are predominant. And, and in fact, the heart of the section ends with the Hallelujah Chorus of Psalm 150. I say all that, obviously, just to give a context to Book 3. Uh, now, if you would, turn to Psalm 84, because our psalm this morning is part of Book 3. And you will see that it is quintessentially um, has Leviticus uh, in mind. Um, in terms of its focus on the sanctuary or the temple or the tabernacle, If you notice in Psalm 84, for the director of music, according to the Gadit of the sons of Korah, a psalm. Again, I remind us, as I do every single Sunday, this is part of the Hebrew text. This is part of the Bible. This is not editor's uh, notation. Uh, we see, first of all, that it was written for the director of music. Um, and if you remember last time, who was one of the directors of music? Yeah, Asaph, remember? The, he was a choir director, a leading in worship. So this was written for them, for those who had the, the, the responsibility to lead the congregation in worship. It was according to the Gadit, it's the Al-Gadit, 
and we don't know. It's the Gadit. Uh, it, it could have been an instrument, but more than likely, this is some kind of a musical notation that has been lost to us. We see this throughout the Psalms, by the way. Uh, very, very specific musical notations that we're just not sure anymore what they mean. Um, in fact, uh, what psalm, I, I, what's, I can't remember which psalm it was, it, it even directed to be, to be sung to the melody of uh, the Song of the Lilies or something like that. And, and it would have been fascinating to hear it. I would have loved to have heard how they, how they sung uh, these psalms. But this was written, again, to be sung. It was intended to be part of their liturgy, part of their worship. And they were to do it according to the Gadith. And it was written by the sons of Korah. Now, anybody know who Korah was? Who was Korah? Remember, remember back in Moses? Yes, Korah led a rebellion against Moses. Thank you, Larry. And uh, so we see when it says the sons of Korah, it doesn't probably mean the actual sons of Korah, but these are the descendants of Korah, the, from the line of Korah. And how far the line of Korah has come from rebellion to his descendants being prominent in, in the, the worship uh, of, of God's people. So this was written by the descendants of Korah, this group. Uh, again, uh, during the time of David, uh, they became great leaders in, in choral and, and orchestral music uh, and were very prominent in the tabernacle. In fact, they were the ones that, uh, that they were called the doorkeepers. Uh, they were the greeters. They, they would be the initial, who, who the people would initially come into contact with. And if anybody knows anything about church, who do you want to put at the door? You want to put your nice people, your good people. You want people that are going to love people and, and welcome them in and, and, and be warm and welcoming. And, and that's, in fact, uh, what the sons of Korah were responsible for. And that's going to be prominent and it's going to be important later on in the psalm because they were the doorkeepers uh, of the temple. If you notice, there is no historical setting per se other than it was written by the sons of Korah. We're going to see in, in the psalm that it is a psalm of a pilgrimage. So this would have been something that they would have sung uh, not only in the temple and the tabernacle, but it would have been something that they sang in their pilgrimage to, to, to Jerusalem two to three times a year. They would make that journey. And uh, this would be something that they would sing on their way. And, and you remember we went through and talked about the psalm, the Psalms of Ascent when we were reading our psalms as our call to worship. These are psalms that they would read uh, as they journeyed to, Jer to Jerusalem. And we all know what music is, helps pass the time, right? I mean, you turn on your, I was going to say CD. It's not CD. What is it? Your serious radio, satellite radio. And traveling seems to go quicker when you're listening to music. I know that... When my wife uh, goes out and walks and jogs, she has to listen to music. Uh, I can't uh, when I exercise, but it helps pass the time. Um, and, and, in, and in fact, that was what they used it for. It wasn't just a time killer. It was a way of worship. But these were, again, this would be called a psalm of pilgrimage. Structurally, do you see anything? In, in, in knowing, having been in our psalm studies, you should pick up on something that the author, how he structured this psalm. There's a very important key. Selah. Remember? That's actually part of the text too. There are two selahs in Psalm 84. 
1 is at the end of 4, right? And a 8. So, for whatever reason, the author, uh, that these would be natural breaks. Even though maybe it doesn't make full, full sense to us in our English translation. When he structured this psalm, when they structured this psalm. Um, 1 through 4, and then 5 through 8, and then last part of 8b through 12 would have been sections that they would have identified as part of their psalm. Maybe verses, if you will. Okay, that's the psalm itself. Psalm 84. Let's, um, let's read it together, and then we'll go back and, and take a look at some things. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar. Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools, and they go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Selah. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield, and the Lord bestows favor and honor, and no good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. One of the things that, that, uh, that we are called to do whenever we, we read great works of literature, of which the Bible is one, is to, is to try to discern tone. Uh, and, and as I've said, obviously that this is much more subjective that, than other things to look at. But when you, when you think of the tone of Psalm 84, um, what, what did you pick up on anything? Was it joyous? Was it, uh, was it contemplative? Uh, was it a, a, a psalm of complaint? Um, it's interesting to me that uh, the, the, the tone of Psalm 84 is one of which a longing is expressed. An intense longing that's expressed. Uh, again, look at verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty, my soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. He, he mentions the tabernacle. The, how lovely is your, is your dwelling place? And some of our translations say tabernacle. But it, we're not sure if it had been the tabernacle or the temple. And that's why maybe we ought for your dwelling place, that place that you have set aside for your presence, that we remember that the temple, the tabernacle of the temple, was the place that God had set aside, that that is where his presence would dwell. This was the place where they met with God. This is where God's presence would be. And he says, 
My soul longs and yearns and faints for the courts of the Lord. The courts would have been the outer courts. Um, if you remember, the, the temple was designed with outer courts, then there were inner courts, then you had the holy place, and then the most holy place. He says, I, my soul yearns and faints for the courts. Even the, 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 even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow nests for herself, a place near your altar. So it sounds like he's, he's, he's longing for the building. Oh, I long to see that building again. I, I long to walk through the doors of that building. No, the, the, he was using the temple, the tabernacle, the dwelling place as a symbol for the very presence of God. Look with me again at the end of verse 2. He said, My heart and my flesh cry out not for a physical structure, but my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. He was yearning and longing to be in God's presence. As he, or as these sons of Korah penned this phrase, they, their, their thoughts turned to birds which is really interesting. When he said, our, 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 my heart and my flesh cry out to, to be in God's presence, it, this, this longing to experience the presence of God. He thought of the, the sparrow and the swallow who, who had apparently made their nest in the courts, in the, in the tabernacle of the temple. And we're not sure why he mentioned that. Or I'll say he, but they were the sons of Korah. The psalmists. Uh, one might have been kind of a, a playful envy. Because um, I think that this was something that was literal. I think that when he went to the temple, when he went to the tabernacle, went into the courts of the Lord and near the altar, there apparently had been birds that had nested um, in that place. Now, Especially you Leviticus people, what would you have thought that they would have done? Uh, okay, when you go to Lowe's, all right, what's in Lowe's? Owl, you have owls in yours? Really? Ours are much smaller birds. There are birds everywhere. They're flying all around. They've nested in there. I always feel sorry for them because can they not find their way? Does their, their whole world, do they think that Lowe's is the, like the, the world? But apparently when they went into the, the, the temple, the tabernacle, there were, there were swallows and sparrows that had made nests in, in, in the structure itself. And the psalmist th- thinks about them, and, 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 and in an anthropomorphic way, he's envious of them. He's envious that they get to be there all the time. Their closeness, their presence, in terms of the, the, the altar and this continued unhindered access to God that, that these birds have. So, so I'm sure that he was, he was thinking of this kind of, I'm just envious of these stupid little birds who get to be in his presence all the time and I only get to come two to three times a year. But I think there's probably something else going on too. And this gets back to the, my comment on Leviticus. It's a place of refuge and safety. Notice, no one chased these birds away. No one said, this is the holy place and I've got to destroy the nest and chase these birds away. No, that, that God allowed the birds to be there. The, the, this was a place of refuge and safety for these birds. 
And I think the psalmist is saying, he's saying that, that in God's presence, it's a place of acceptance, of refuge, of safety. Probably an argument of lesser to greater, that if, these, if it's okay for these birds to be in his presence, how much more is it okay for me to be in his presence? And I got to thinking about our world, and, and, I, and I thought that as our world continues in many ways to fall apart, death, violence, corruption, wickedness, we need to use that word more because we see it more. <laughs> see, it, 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 the world is always, there's always been a lot of wickedness, but now it's just being unmasked, I think. In, in a world that is filled with death and violence and wickedness, um, we need to seek the very presence of God through Christ for refuge, for safety, for continued unhindered access into his presence. And if the birds can, he says, verse 4, even the sparrow has found a house, the swallow a nest, then blessed are those who dwell in your house where they they are ever praising you. If the birds can, I can. If he invites the birds into his presence, he certainly invites me into his presence. And in that place, I praise him. So we see this, this longing expressed, this longing to be in the courts of the Lord, not to marvel at the structure, but to be in the very presence of God, because this was a very special time, only two to three times a year were they able to do this. And that was Lucky little birds that got to be there all the time. But this longing, this longing expressed leads to a, a, this longing to be in the God's presence then moves to this is a presence that, I, that, that needs to be pursued. A, a presence pursued. In verse 5, he said, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Selah, pause and think about who he is. Look with favor on your anointed one. It's interesting that he says that uh, this is a presence that has to be pursued. That I can't just long for it, but that I have to pursue it. And for them, it was a a literal journey (laughs) to Jerusalem. It was certainly not out of obligation. He said, blessed are those who strengthen you. Blessed are those whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Happy are those who are set on pilgrimage. This, they did not view this, these psalmists did not view this as an obligation. I've got to go back to Jerusalem, you know, I've got to find a place to stay again. No, this was a joy for them. He says, blessed are those whose hearts are set on travel. To seek out to the, the, this journey, this pilgrimage. And he says that their strength is in you, 
and their heart is set on pilgrimage. Now, no doubt, I think we automatically think that every single Israelite always went to Jerusalem for the feast. These two to three times a year they were required to go. We, 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 we assume that they all went. I have no doubt that probably many, if not most, probably rarely went. No doubt many just sat that pilgrimage out. You know, we've got so much going on at the house. You know, I got so much to do around the house, and 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 work. Just a bad time of the year at work. Um, no doubt. I mean, people are people, right? I mean, I'm sure there were many, if not most, who never made that journey, who whose hearts were not set on pilgrimage. Quite frankly, the presence of God wasn't real, a real high priority in their life. You know, they got the kids and the grandkids. But he said, happy and blessed are those who are, whose heart is set on pilgrimage, who pursue God's presence. But he says, warning, Will Robinson, warning. Verse 6, as they pass through the valley of Baca. Valley of Baca. Or Baca. We're, we're, there's really no known historical valley called Baca. Valley of Baca. So, one of two things most believe that this is, is that this is a word that sounds like the Hebrew for weeping. Baca. Just sobbing and weeping and crying. So, maybe he, he's using this as a metaphor for when we're on this pilgrimage, there will be times of of sadness, of weeping and crying. This word, though, a form of this word is also used, though, for a kind of tree, a kind of balsam tree that flourished in really dry and arid places. And I don't know that we need to try to figure out which one it is. I think that in this case, we could probably say it probably has a double meaning. That that these were places, uh, that these were dry places these were these represented times of weeping and mourning and, and, and difficulty the, the valley of, of Baca we, there are times in our lives when we go through these valleys right I mean these times of, of difficulty the, the, this in other words the psalmist is saying this pursuit is is not an easy one it is filled with difficulties it, with weeping and dry places. And, and yet, at the same time, he says, as these pilgrims that, who have their hearts, as they, uh, their hearts set on pilgrimage, who long for the presence of God, who are pursuing the presence of God, even in the valley of Baca, he says, they make it a place of springs, and the autumn rains also cover it with pools. Th- these are places that can and are transformed. By, by the presence of joyful pilgrims. And whenever I hear pilgrims, I, th- I think of the hat, you know, turkey and stuff. But a pilgrim is just someone who is on a sacred journey. It's interesting that he says they will experience anew the, the bountiful hand of God. Look with me. In verse 7, they will go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Strength to strength. What does it mean? Go to strength. 
go from strength to strength. I think, again, he's referring probably to the rigors of pilgrimage. And, and as they traveled, in some of the places they traveled from, they would have to travel from one oasis to the next. We do that when we travel, right? Uh, whenever we drive to Hobbs, we go from Denver to Las Vegas. And that's Las Vegas. We get gas. We go to McDonald's. We stretch our legs. Uh, Las Vegas, New Mexico. Some of you look confused. Las Vegas, New Mexico. And we get in our cars and we, and we take off again. And we start making that lovely drive from Las Vegas to Vaughn, New Mexico. And there's literally nothing there. And we stop in Vaughn. And we get gas. And we stretch our legs. And we get a Coke. And Vicky gets chips and bunions and pork rinds. And, and we head out from Vaughn. And we go, and we, and the even worse drive from Vaughn to Roswell. There's even nothing would be nice. There's not that. There's not even nothing. There's, it's a long drive, and we stop in Roswell, and we say hello to our my son and his wife, and you know, and soon to be grand new grandchild, and and then we we leave Roswell, and then we go to Hobbs. We go from strength to strength. We go from. Resting place to resting place. We go from filling up our tanks to filling up our tanks to eating. And I think that's maybe, that's the sense I get of this. He goes, you know, it's a, it's a journey. And there are times you have to continually refresh and refill um, and stretch your legs. <laughs> because it's, it, it can get monotonous. It can get difficult. It can get even quite frankly, I, here's, here's my, I think the vast majority of Christians, the reason they don't read their Bibles, the reason they don't pray, the reason they don't, is it's just flat out, they think it's absolutely boring. But he says, if your heart is set on pilgrimage, and you pursue his presence, you will need rest stops. You won't just pass by the rest stops. You're going to have to stop Stretch your legs from strength to strength. And obviously the, 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 the picture here would be spiritual rest or spiritual rest stops, refueling, again the consequences of failure to do so. Keep your marker here and turn to Isaiah 40, if you would, Isaiah 40. Most of us are familiar with these, these verses, but this is the gist of it, I think. Isaiah 40 verse 28. Do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. Here it is. He gives strength to the weary. I think that's what the psalmist is talking about, strength to strength. That in this, in this pursuit, in this pilgrimage, I'm going to grow weary. I'm going to grow tired. I'm going to be discouraged. I'm going to have setbacks. He'll give strength to the weary. He'll increase the power of the weak. Even though youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. That, that strength again. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk 
and not be faint. The rigors of pilgrimage, the, the need of going from strength to strength, from one rest stop to another. That, that Listen, the Christian life is, is at times weary. We grow weary and tired and discouraged. And just to be honest with you, that's something I'm battling with right now. I'm battling discouragement on all levels. Just discouraged. Just discouraged with myself. Discouraged with my world, what's going on around me. I'm just discouraged. I'm battling discouragement. I mean, you go from strength to strength. I, I need to remember that, that God is there to, to give me strength. And then in verse eight, it's as if it's as if he he's get, he gets caught up in this pursuit of his presence, and he gets overwhelmed with it. And he says, "Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. This is significant. What does your translation say in verse eight? Hear my prayer, what, Lord of hosts? What do you think of when you think of Lord of hosts?" In Christmas, we have that, this, you know, the Lord of hosts, the heavenly host. What do we think of when we think of heavenly host? You know, this angelic choir. Ring, ring. You know, they got the, the, the wings and the harps and stuff like that. What was the word? What, what, did, what did host? Anybody know what host? The, the word that host rep means? Armies. The Lord of armies. The heavenly armies. So when, when he appeals to the Lord of the heavenly armies, metaphorically, or, uh, what, is, what is he appealing to? God's protection. That, that his power and his strength. In other words, that he has the strength and the power to lead me from strength to strength. The Lord of hosts, the Lord God Almighty. But then he said he also appeals to God as the God of Jacob. What might that, what, what is he appealing to there? Is Jacob still alive? No, he, he died a long time ago. But why would he say God of Jacob? Faithfulness. He's saying, I'm still the God of Jacob. I'm a faithful God. I'm faithful to my promises. I'm faithful to my covenants. And the psalmist appeals to God, not just from the strength of him, of his, but also his faithfulness, his covenant faithfulness, the God of Jacob. And then he inserts verse 9. No doubt, probably. Uh, some, some, it's interesting, I read one that said this is David. I don't think this is David. I, I think this may have been a long story of how I got there. I think it might have been Hezekiah. Uh, Clearly a king. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. It seems oddly out of place. But what to, to look upon meant to grant favor. And I think that obviously this is a foreshadow of the anointed one, Mashiach, who is to come, Christ. He says... How happy and blessed are those whose hearts are set on pilgrimage, pilgrimage a, a presence pursued, but then finally a fellowship that is valued. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. 
this phrase better. <laughs> this value. This is a value word. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. And that's interesting. The sons of Korah wrote this, and they were doorkeepers. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Um, notice these, these, these juxtaposition of words. He's saying, uh, better is one day than a thousand. And, and the text just says thousand. We, we have to provide the word elsewhere. That, that, that's implied. But the psalmist is, is almost saying, fill in the blank. It, it, it's, it's better than anything elsewhere. So he, 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 this juxtaposition of, of a day to thousand, day being a brief time. And, and in fact, relatively speaking, it was a brief time that they were able to come into God's presence. It was brief as opposed to thousand, which is, which is immense, extended time. And then he talks about his courts. The, the, the courts, remember, it wasn't just the physical courts, but it was God's presence. He's saying, I'd rather be in God's presence than, any, than in anyone else's presence anywhere. I would rather be in his presence, certainly, than not in his presence. How much he valued God's presence. We, listen, we will only pursue that which we value. If we don't value God's presence, then we won't pursue it. In fact, he says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. I'd rather have the lowliest position but be in God's presence than, 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 than have the lavish, rich luxury of, of ease out of his presence. Again, these are, these are ways of expressing the value that he has placed on the presence of God. In fact, he says, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. He is the, the sun in terms of provision, shield in terms of protection. In fact, the Lord bestows favor and honor. These are things that I experience when I'm in the presence of God. His power, His provision, His protection, His favor, His honor. And in fact, he said, this, this great line, no good thing does He withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Now, Again, I, I think this is this is simply saying, making a point. Our God is a is a is a God who loves to bless and to give. And don't read new cars into this, although that may be part of it. Certainly, all good things come from His hand. But it's a, it, but it's a, in in terms of what we experience in His presence. As we are in His presence, He will withhold no good thing from us when we dwell in His presence. When we are in His very presence. And he says, O oh Lord of hosts, Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Unmitigated, unconditional trust. And here's what I ask myself, and hopefully you ask yourself, what does God's presence mean? What does it mean to be in God's presence? 
what verb shall I use? Shall I say experience? Is that the right verb? Observe? Whether it's me preaching or if you listen to any other preachers, don't let them get away with just talking about stuff and not delving into what does that really mean. Because this preach is good. Uh, you know, go out and seek, pursue the presence of God. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, what does that mean? How do I know? What is it? How do I know? Rather than saying, oh, that was so inspiring. What do we mean? What did the psalmist mean when he talks about, I want to be in, in the very place where God's presence dwells? Here's, what I, here's my best shot. Spiritual communion. Um, oftentimes, I think we equate the presence of God with some kind of extra special manifestation, right? That, uh, that glitter, gold glitter is falling from the ceiling. Or, you know, the hair on my neck stands up and I get the heebie-jeebies and, you know, God's here, God's presence. I, I don't think it's that. I think it's simple spiritual communion. What is communion? What, what is communion? If you were to define, if we, if we enjoy communion with one another, what does that imply? When we're in each other's presence and we experience communion, what does that imply? It implies a meaningful, a, and, and that's important, a meaningful interchange. When, when we are enjoying communion with one another, we, we have meaningful interchange. We're not just saying, oh, how was your day? Oh, my day was fine. How was your day? You're not fine. No, we, we share struggles. We share aches and pains and challenges. There's... there's there's meaningful interchange. There's sharing of thoughts. There's a sharing of emotions. When we are in God's presence, when we experience spiritual communion, there's an affective aspect to it. Where there's an emotional aspect. Not always, and it doesn't always have to be, you know, level ten. But communion means there's a meaningful interchange or sharing of, of thoughts and emotions, of intimate communication, of holding in common. This, these are the things that, that represent communion. And to the psalmist, he said, this is my pursuit. This is what I long for. This is what I yearn for. And here's what I ask myself. I have so many things going on in my life. The last thing sometimes I yearn and faint for is to experience spiritual communion with God. Instead, what am I doing? I'm saying, oh God, fix this. Provide for this. Give me this. And to be sure, he invites us to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But I often wonder, how would my life be different when I struggle with fear and discouragement and despair Instead of saying, oh God, fix it, say, oh God, I want to be in your presence. I want to experience spiritual communion with you. It doesn't have to be in church, although that's, this is preeminently what it sh- If there is no other place, it should be here. 
corporately, certainly corporately, but could be in the middle of the night, outside of your bed. Now, these are challenges to pursuit of God's presence. All by my many needs. I'm consumed by my needs. I'm, I'm consumed by my discouragements. I, quite frankly, am overwhelmed with my unbelief. The last thing that I'm yearning and fainting for is to experience spiritual communion with God. I think also we can take from this psalm, though, a, 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 a larger illustration of a Christian life. And that this, this life is a pilgrimage. This life is a journey. And it is filled with valleys of baka, of weeping, of dryness, of challenge. It's rigorous, is it not? And, and this is why so many professed Christians just completely drop out. It's hard. It's, it's confusing. Because remember we talked about last time, sometimes when I, when I read this and what I read here and the promises I see here don't match up with what I, when I walk out that door. It doesn't match up. Valley of Vision, I've talked about it before. In fact, Jordy uh, led me to that the, there's a, uh, an app, and it'll send you a daily one, right, Jordy? Isn't it? They automatically send it to you. I, 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 so I get that, but I, I just like the book. Is that okay, Jordy? Okay. I knew it was. I appreciate that. If, if you're interested, there is an app, a Valley of Vision, and uh, uh, that you can get w- a prayer every day. I'd just like to close by reading this this prayer. My dear Lord, I can but tell thee that thou knowest that I long for nothing but thyself. Nothing but holiness. Nothing but union with thy will. Thou hast given me these desires, for thou alone canst give me the thing desired. My soul longs for communion with thee for mortification of indwelling corruption, especially spiritual pride. How precious it is to have a tender sense and clear apprehension of the mystery of godliness, of true holiness. What a blessedness to be like Thee, as much as it is possible for a creature to be like its Creator. Lord, give me more of Thy likeness. Enlarge my soul to contain fullness of holiness. Enlarge me to live more for Thee. Help me to be less pleased with my spiritual experiences. And when I feel at ease after sweet communings, teach me it is far too little I know and do. Blessed Lord, let me climb up near to Thee and love and long and plead and wrestle with Thee and pant for deliverance from the body of sin. For my heart is wandering and lifeless. My soul mourns to think it should ever lose sight of its beloved. Wrap my life in divine love and keep me ever desiring Thee. Always humble and resigned to Thy will, more fixed on Thyself, that I may be more fitted for doing and suffering. Would you please stand up?
Praise Father, Son, and Holy 